Glenn Kirshner is a 30-year federal prosecutor. He was in the Army JAG office and was U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia. Kirshner provides legal commentary on national news media such as MSNBC, including tonight, CNN, and The Stephanie Miller Show, along with his Justice Matters podcast, available anywhere you get your podcasts. In mid-September 2020, Kirshner argued that grand juries should be convened and Donald Trump charged with manslaughter or murder for the deaths due to his mishandling of the COVID pandemic. Please welcome to KZYX, Glenn Kirshner. Good afternoon, Glenn. How are you? Good afternoon. I'm well. How are you? I, you know, I'm good, but I'm also troubled by the state of uh, affairs and the, in particular the state of uh, what seems to be a extremely slow justice system. I'm frustrated as well. As a, a former prosecutor for 30 years uh, in both military and civilian courts, both trial and appellate courts, you know, what I have seen, even just in the evidence that's been publicly reported, makes it absolutely clear, I would say inarguably clear, that Donald Trump and any number of criminal associates um, have committed crimes against the United States. There is easily evidence to make out um, the probable cause standard, which is the standard for an arrest. How it is that we continue to have to endure, you know, Donald Trump's, um, the, the danger that he poses by continuing to offer the big lie to those who are willing to believe it, to sort of whip up sentiment for um, overturning Joe Biden's presidency. It's completely inexplicable to me. I understand the inclination of federal prosecutors. I was one for decades to try to put together the strongest case possible before they ask the grand jury to vote out indictments. But public safety is always part of the calculation when we're deciding when to indict a case. Public safety and indeed our democracy has been suffering now for many, many, many months and it's time for the Department of Justice to move out and begin to hold Trump accountable, at least in my opinion. Well, I think you speak for many in that, especially here. The new book, Carol Woodward and Costa, seems to, again, emphasize the mountain of evidence. You would certainly take this to a grand jury and I would think have no problem getting some indictments out there. Yeah, there, there's little doubt a grand jury would return indictments for any number of crimes by Donald Trump. Inciting, the, inciting an insurrection and a seditious conspiracy, those are just the latest crimes. But, you know, we could go all the way back to when he was running for office and he was in a criminal conspiracy with Michael Cohen to violate campaign finance laws and hide deeply damaging information from the American voters, frankly, thereby robbing us of the full value of our vote. Michael Cohen had pleaded guilty to it, was convicted of it, was imprisoned, served his sentence. Donald Trump has yet to be charged for the exact same crime he committed as a co-conspirator with Michael Cohen. And then if we had about six hours, I'd be happy to move forward in time chronologically and catalog all of Donald Trump's other crimes, whether it's um, conspiracy to defraud the United States with the Zelensky affair, he bribed and extorted President Zelensky to his political advantage. He obstructed congressional proceedings by telling all of his executive branch officials not to comply with lawfully issued congressional subpoenas. That's textbook obstruction of congressional proceedings. He 
witness tampered um, Ambassador Marie Ivanovich in real time while she was testifying. He has, I, I believe, as a former homicide prosecutor and a former chief of homicide in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, I believe he's criminally liable for hundreds of thousands of preventable COVID deaths because he easily satisfies the three elements of a low level of homicide, whether we call it involuntary manslaughter or negligent homicide, different jurisdictions call it different things. I'd be happy to tick through those three elements. But it goes on and on and on. It sort of culminates with inciting an insurrection, trying to unconstitutionally retain power. And I just wonder when some jurisdiction uh, will finally indict him. It could be New York. It could be Georgia. I've maintained that Donald Trump is a federal problem. He's committed federal crimes against the laws of the United States and we the people, and we need a federal solution. I could not agree more, but I also have to say, again, this emphasizes a little frustration with the Justice Department because we should never have seen Donald Trump uh, in a position to get elected in the first place if they had prosecuted his just his career and his life of swindles and scandals in New York, which most people in New York were fully aware of. So that, that you know, kind of adds a little irk to it as you list that amazing list, the different crimes he's done since he's been in the White House, the most maybe important job in, in America. Speaking of the Costas and Woodward book, do they or at least their sources have an obligation to reveal this information when there was still time to stop the madness, which led to the insurrection and, of course, the deaths that came with that? that that's a great question. And I would I would argue it's more a moral issue than it is a legal issue. Um, you, you can't assist a perpetrator in getting away with a crime. What I mean by that is there's a federal crime of accessory after the fact, 18 U.S. Code Section 3, right up front in the uh, Title 18 Criminal Code. And it says that if you know that somebody has committed laws in violation of the, the federal statutes, and you do anything to assist that person in avoiding apprehension or punishment, you could be on the hook criminally as an accessory after the fact. I don't think journalists, by investigating and then deciding the timing of their reporting about crimes committed by public officials, qualifies. I think it's more of a moral issue than it is a legal issue. Um, and I am as big a fan of the fourth estate. I was my undergraduate degree many decades ago is actually in journalism. I am as big a fan of the fourth estate as anybody. So, you know, I, I believe that we need a healthy, robust, determined press. And I don't know that it's in the nation's interest to start to second guess, you know, what journalists knew when they knew it and if they had disclosed it earlier. Could we have put a stop to Trump before he was able to, you know, endanger hundreds of thousands of Americans with his covid lies? I think we can argue that on the moral front all day long. I'm not so sure anybody could take it to court as a crime. Yeah. And again, it's maybe not the, the reporters as much as the sources who were in the White House and gathering that information and weren't saying anything. So you worked in Robert Mueller's office. What do you think of the investigation he did into Trump? Yeah, I'm a big fan of 
Bob Mueller because he was my direct supervisor. He taught me how to be a federal homicide prosecutor, and he also taught me how to run the homicide section at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia. Um, I took over that job a few years after he left. Um, I have the utmost respect for him. He was a terrific supervisor, perhaps the best I ever worked for, military or civilian. Um, I, I hesitate to say I perhaps would have done some things differently. Um, you know, he he is a rule follower, and I really am reluctant to add the clause a rule follower to a fault. Um, I would have liked to have seen him come out more directly on Donald Trump have, having committed crimes. He Now, he documented it in volume two of his report, meticulously documented multiple instances of felony obstruction of justice by Donald Trump. And then he somewhat famously testified before Congress that Donald Trump could be indicted upon leaving office, which really does add insult to injury that he hasn't been indicted by today's mm -hmm. Department of Justice. I think Bob Mueller, when you read the letter appointing him as special counsel, he followed that letter to to the T. And the reason I say that is because he wasn't tasked. His, his mandate was not prosecute all crime you find. His, mm -hmm. his mandate was to investigate connections between the Trump campaign and Russia and prosecute any cases you think you need to prosecute to further that investigative mandate. And that's what he did. He didn't go any further. I would have liked to have seen him gone for, go further. Perhaps he wasn't permitted to by, you know, the powers that be at the time. But, you know, I, I hate to quibble with the with the work he did or the conclusions he reached. I, I wish it would have produced more concrete than it did. And I know there was a lot of frustration. There still is a lot of frustration with that report. But the other factor I would put into this is that we didn't see the report. I mean, the, the public didn't. It was so redacted by the bar justice system that, uh, you know, it, it didn't get the public outrage that I think would have maybe instigated a further investigation and perhaps some sort of a action by justice. Yeah, Bill Barr, Bill Barr lied to us about the contents of the report and the truth never had a chance to catch up. And I don't say Bill Barr lied to us casually or cavalierly. That was the finding of Federal District Court Judge Reggie Walton, uh, something of a lion of D.C. criminal justice circles. I handled cases before Judge Walton. Um, and he said, you know, Bill Barr mischaracterized the Mueller report. Mm -hmm. He said Bill Barr, quote, spun the Mueller report. He said that Bill Barr's assertions about the Mueller report were contradicted by the contents of the Mueller report. And then he capped it all off with Bill Barr lacks candor. That's something, frankly, that I wrote a letter and referred Bill Barr to the Office of Professional Responsibility at the Department of Justice, because that's the right thing to do anytime a judge makes a finding like that about a federal prosecutor. So Bill Barr lied to us with an agenda, and the truth never had a chance to catch up. And I hope, for, I hope someday Bill Barr is, is held to account for that. Is there a mechanism to stop that? behavior because it's going to be implanted in many parties from here to go if you just simply throw out enough you know crap that by the time they dig out from it you're off to the races and, and home free 
The only effective way to address it is by prosecuting those who perpetrate it the moment you find out Mm -hmm. they committed those crimes, because that will deter tomorrow's nefarious attorney general from doing the same thing. We can pass all the new laws we want. And if you have a Donald Trump in office and he is backstopped by a corrupt attorney general like Bill Barr, we could triple the amount of laws that are on the federal books and it would not succeed in Mm -hmm. stopping this kind of conduct. The only way to stop it, in my opinion, is to prosecute it the moment you find it, because that deters tomorrow's corrupt politician. So much of this reminds me of the old South when, you know, all white juries were convicting, um, you know, black folk for minding their own business. And And there was nothing anyone could do because the entire system was corrupt, including the justice. If you as a prosecutor, even assistant prosecutor, somebody in the system, see a dead to rights, absolute winnable case and you can't get your boss to prosecute. Is there any legal, ethical ways around that, like going to the press or moving it to prosecutors in another region? Well, it's a big question. Are there legal ways to do it? Are there ethical ways to do it? Of course, as federal prosecutors, we're prohibited from going to the press. We're prohibited from leaking information because we don't like the answer we're getting from our own supervisors at the Department of Justice. But your question is a great one, because if you have a corrupt attorney general who is frankly using the Department of Justice and the criminal justice system to reward Donald Trump's criminal associates like Mike Flynn and Roger Stone and Bannon and others and punish Donald Trump's perceived enemies like Michael Cohen, who make no mistake about it, was unconstitutionally put back in prison for exercising his First Amendment rights, and that was basically the finding of a federal court judge in New York. What do you do? What do you do as a line prosecutor? Do you just sit back and say, listen, the rules and policies and procedures say I'm not allowed to out this? If it were me, I, and I served every president as, an, as a federal prosecutor from Reagan to Trump, and I retired uh, in June of 2018, um, I would I would like to think if it was me, I would become whatever kind of whistleblower I could become to make sure the public is protected, to make sure I fulfilled my oath to protect and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, because Donald Trump is a domestic enemy of the Constitution. I don't think I would have sat silently by while Trump and Barr slowly dismantled our democracy. At least that's 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 my take on how I would have handled it. I appreciate the people who say I decided to stay on the inside and try to keep whatever guardrails in place. I thought I could keep in place to keep our democracy from completely imploding. I respect that. But at some point when you see it's not working, you have to come forward with the information as your a couple of questions ago. You said, well, what about the sources who provided the information to the Woodwards and the Costas. I agree with you. There is a time when those people have to step to the cameras like a Colonel Vindman and say, this is what I just saw Donald Trump do. It was a crime. And I am here to protect our nation against a domestic enemy at this point. So I have the utmost respect for the 
Colonel Vinman's and the Ambassador Jovanovic's of the world. Mm-hmm. And, and General Milley, you could question why he didn't come out earlier, but I think it can't be denied that he may have, you know, saved the country, building in some safeguards from someone who seemed, you know, unscrewed. Uh, let me grab my my internet uh, attorney's uh, certificate here and ask you a few legal questions. In the reversed fire in the theater example, if I were to yell, there is no fire, stay seated. I know more about fires and firefighters and don't leave. It'll be out in minutes or the summer at the latest. Uh, how culpable am I for that absolute neglect of humanity? So I assume you're kind of we're, we're segueing to the COVID, to the handling of the COVID situation. A bit, yes, Trump yeah, exactly. And his administration. So it, it, it's actually a pretty straightforward proposition to this old homicide prosecutor's way of thinking. There are basically three elements, three things that we would have to prove if we were to try to hold Donald Trump criminally responsible for avoidable COVID deaths. We would have to prove one that he did something that was culpably negligent, a, 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 um, a culpably negligent act. So as commander, or that he had a responsibility to act and he failed to act. And that was a, a product of, of gross negligence. I think Donald Trump did both of those things. He both acted in a grossly negligent way when he lied to us about the nature of the danger posed by the pandemic. We know he lied to us because Bob Woodward caught him on tape telling the truth. He was telling Bob Woodward how dangerous it was, how transmissible it was, how it was so many times more deadly than your average flu. And then he went out to the cameras and told the people, told us the exact opposite, nothing to fear here. Mm -hmm. And then he mocked people who wore masks, people who tried to take even minimal precautions. So he was grossly negligent in the way he acted and the way he failed to act. If that grossly negligent act is reasonably likely to produce either death or serious injury, that's the second element of the offense of involuntary manslaughter or negligent homicide. He easily checks that box because his grossly negligent act was certainly reasonably likely to result in death or serious bodily injury to to others, and in fact, it did. And then the third element, I know I'm doing a Crim Law 101 class now, That's but okay. the third element of the crime is that his grossly negligent act thereby caused the death of another. And that's where people get caught up because in the law, we think of causation as you fired the fatal bullet, you stabbed the victim, you strangled the victim. And that's a form of direct causation. But causation in the law is, dis- is defined as follows, that your conduct was a substantial factor in bringing about the death of another. Donald Trump's conduct was a substantial factor in bringing about death because people made their life decisions, their behavioral decisions based on what he said and what he said were lies. And, and here's the example, and this is the most long-winded answer to the direct question you asked. What if I told everybody to just stay seated in a crowded uh, theater that was on fire? We tried a case in D.C. where somebody, a a robber was chasing a victim, trying to rob the victim. 
the victim was trying to evade the robber and he darted out into traffic. The victim was struck by a car and killed. Now, what was the cause of death? People would say it was the car. It was a car accident that struck the, the victim and killed him. We charged it as a homicide. Why? Because causation is defined as your conduct being a substantial factor in bringing about the death. And that's what we argued the robber's conduct did. It was a substantial factor in causing the victim to dart out into traffic. We won that case. Donald Trump's conduct in lying to us about the danger and the transmissibility of, of COVID was a substantial factor in bringing about the death. And it was just as if he chased us out into a deadly pandemic and he lied to us about the consequences. That's why I argue that Donald Trump is criminally responsible for avoidable COVID deaths. Well, that all makes logical sense. But what about the argument that because he was officially the president, that his statements and so forth are representative of the United States. So therefore, if you're going to go after him, you're basically going after the presidency rather than the individual, that his statements were based on, you know, obviously lies, but what he would claim was best information at the time. Well, I would argue that if you take the position of president is absolutely immune, then he can not only shoot people on Fifth Avenue with impunity, he can bring his political enemies into the Oval Office and execute them with impunity. If that's the kind of country we want, then I guess we, we can make the all powerful, absolutely immune president is a king argument. The Supreme Court has rejected that argument. And that's why they forced him or told Mazars, his accounting firm, that he's not absolutely immune and they need to hand over his tax documents and financial records. So even the Supreme Court has rejected the president as king argument. True. But again, with a corrupt justice system, as we had under Barr and a few more appointees to that Supreme Court, can we trust that? I mean, part of the thing, Glenn, is that I, I feel a little fooled. I mean, I felt I had a rudimentary understanding of civics and I felt there was some backstop so that a president or party couldn't be a supervillain. But mm -hmm. I, I, I realized I ran so much on faith that there was a common yeah. understanding of proper behavior. Was I a victim of 70s uh, schooling or just gullible? Or I mean, I, I, while it sounds reassuring when you say the, the judges basically shoved it back in his face and say, no, you're not a king. I realize that sounds a little hollow after what we went through and how he got away with basically almost everything. Yeah, we, we've been sold a bill of goods. Um, yeah, I think maybe we thought our country was something it's not, was better than it actually is. And what we've discovered is that no matter how many laws you put on the books, no matter how many policies, procedures, and traditions ordinarily and historically governed our, our government, it's all out the window if you can't rely on the good conduct and the at least minimal morality of the men and women who populate government. That's what we have discovered, because by and large, the Republican Party has decided the rules don't apply to us. The laws don't apply to us. We are in a post-shame, post-irony era, and we will do anything we believe is necessary to retain power.
including trying to overthrow the will of the American voters in a presidential election. So I, I think we were taught the principles of government that if everybody cared about the law and, mor and morality, we would be fine. Mm -hmm. Thing is, you know, the, the Pandora's box has been opened and at least one party has realized that there may be no repercussions for trying to unlawfully hold on to power because nobody's prosecuting them for it. Mm -hmm. And that's really, you know, if there's no respect for the rule of law, then nobody is going to abide by the rule of law. That's why it all goes back to the Department of Justice has to step up and do its job if it cares about the future viability of our democracy. And as of yet, the Department of Justice has not done that. Yeah, even now under a new administration. It, it kind of gets me to another reverse, the, the idea of the uh, poisonous fruit from a corrupt tree. Is is there no way after the fact, if you know, if you had a president who accidentally swallowed lead and went insane, uh, you'd think there would be repercussions for the activities he did. I mean, if you were to catch somebody, a judge, convicted of crimes for his convictions because he was really doing it for a mobster and taking bribes, wouldn't those convicted people be released? How do we get stuck with these judges and things like Space Force and all this if this former president is convicted of deep corruption? You know, the laws are only as good as the people are in positions to enforce those laws. So, um, you know, this is why I have been screaming as if my hair was on fire, if I had hair, <laughs> that it, it all boils down to the rule of law and absent a, a viable uh, and even vibrant rule of law, then we're lost. Then we, you know, better republics than us have fallen. And if we're unwilling to enforce the rule of law against criminal politicians, then I think we're lost. And then we're just slouching toward the end of our republic. Um, and, you know, people will say, well, it will look like political payback and revenge if a Democratic administration goes after the prior Republican administration, you know, to which I say, look, you don't become a banana republic by prosecuting criminal politicians. You become a banana republic by declining mm -hmm. to prosecute criminal politicians. That's where we are at this moment. Now, it's not all gloom and doom because I cannot conceive of a scenario where the Department of Justice and the people at the top are good people. Merrick Garland, Lisa Monaco, who I used to work with at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, and, and Kristen uh, Clark and Vanita Gupta. These are good dedicated, honorable uh, public servants, I cannot conceive of a scenario where they ultimately decline to prosecute Trump and company and just give up on our democracy, because that's what they would be doing. So I think they're taking too long, as is New York, as is Georgia. Heck, in Georgia, the crime was caught on a recorded phone call. Yeah. <laughs> How is it that we haven't charged Donald Trump for violating Georgia election laws when he said, somebody just find me 11,780 votes and corruptly declare me the winner. Yeah. That's the message. I understand any of this, but I still can't conceive of a scenario where he is not indicted by multiple jurisdictions because I don't think the people who are in positions of power 
are ready to give up on our democracy, and that's what they would be doing. Well, I sure hope so, because there are people serving sentences for having a bong in the back of their car, and yet here we have, you know, obvious evidence of, of, of crime and dishonesty. It seems, and you mentioned this a bit earlier, it seems like the law often gets stopped by precedent or lack thereof. We see a lot of obvious crimes to the community, but because nobody has prosecuted, these audacious criminals get away with this. Doesn't there have to be somebody who jumps out of the nest to see if you can fly first? Yes, yes, yes. You're, you're, you're singing my tune. So if you couldn't act absent precedent, guess what? We never would have acted because everything has to be done for the first time. And if you could never do anything unless somebody else had done it before, that doesn't make any sense. It's a circular argument. So people will say, well, a former prosecutor, a former president has never been prosecuted. There's no precedent. Well, if he commits crimes and the facts support charging him, then then somebody has to do it for the first time. The absence of precedent is not a good argument against indicting a former criminal president. The more important question, is there anything prohibiting indicting a, and let's just say, is there anything prohibiting indicting a president? And the answer is there's no legal authority that says we can't indict a sitting criminal president. The constitution doesn't say it, no federal statute says it, and no case law, no Supreme Court or appellate court precedent says it. There's a nonsense memo at the Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel first authored during the Nixon era, saying, we don't think it's a good idea to indict a sitting president. Well, we can probably all agree to that, but there's no law, there's no precedent that says we can't do it. The Department of Justice, unsurprisingly, took the view that it's not a good idea for anybody to prosecute their boss. That's what went on there, Mm -hmm. because the Department of Justice is under the control of the president. So there's nothing prohibiting, nothing legally prohibiting indicting a sitting criminal president. There's certainly nothing legally prohibiting indicting a former president. I I remember somebody on the air saying that the the justice memo has as much weight as the other memo about stealing food out of the refrigerator. It it just it, it just doesn't wash. Take us behind the scenes a bit. What is actually structurally happening right now in D.C., New York, and Georgia with these investigations? So in D.C., there are 60 federal prosecutors working. That's my old office for about a quarter of a century. And frankly, some of my close friends and former colleagues and former homicide prosecutors are working the insurrection cases. So and they are doing heroic work. They have more than 600 prosecutions up and running. There are more to come. They're working day and night. Uh, I feel sorry for them. Part of me wishes I was still there with them. But, you know, they are still focusing on the foot soldiers of the insurrection, the angry mob that Trump inspired and incited to attack the Capitol. Of necessity, that investigation also includes investigating the funders, the organizers, and the inciters of the insurrection It's just that they're following an investigative blueprint. They're going after the low hanging fruit, the, you know, the bottom of the criminal uh, totem pole. Those are the foot soldiers, the knuckleheads that were duped into believing that their vote was stolen and and the way to 
address it was to attack the folks in the Capitol who were certifying the election. They're, they're going to get to the other criminal charges. They're building toward a seditious conspiracy, in my opinion. And then we have to see what the evidence supports by way of indicting funders, organizers, and insiders. The insiders, I think, is pretty clear, given that speech on January 6th, the pre-insurrection pep rally that launched the attack on the Capitol. I think those folks are easily on the hook, at least as far as the evidence is concerned, uh, for inciting the insurrection. Now, behind the scenes in Georgia, I think Fannie Willis uh, is doing her due diligence um, on Donald Trump's and perhaps Lindsey Graham's and others election crimes in violation of the state laws of Georgia. And, you know, that seems to be a pretty easily provable case because of that unbelievable audio recording of Donald Trump trying to corruptly steal that election. Behind the scenes in New York is a little trickier because you mentioned I, I grew I was born in Brooklyn and grew up in Jersey and everybody up there uh, knew Donald Trump was a career criminal. Um, and he has he was given a pass by the authorities for decades. We can only speculate as to why that is. There's probably a lot of things that went into that failing by government. But, um, you know, they seem to be working through um, the next round of indictments in the Weisselberg and Trump organization case. And Weisselberg's lawyer on Monday said we expect more indictments to be coming soon. And that's obviously a product of what the prosecutors were telling them. So it, it could be that the next wave of indictments could include somebody whose last name is Trump, whether a family member or Donald Trump himself. It could be that it's the sons of Weisselberg who were also in Donald Trump's business orbit. Um, maybe they're going to try to charge them as a way to pressure Alan Weisselberg, the CFO, to flip on Trump. Maybe Matthew Calamari, you know, bouncer turned the chief offer, chief operating officer of the, the Trump organization. Name, we we yeah. don't know. We don't know at this point who might be in the next wave of indictments handed down by the Manhattan grand jury, but it, it sounds like they're coming. Thank goodness. And that includes another area of criminality that I hope to see the justice department address. And, and that is with our foreign relations. I mean, we talked about COVID early, I mean, COVID began because Trump pulled our inspectors out of Wuhan. They might have caught this long before it ever got to where it is. And we've, of course, had our issues with the Ukraine and Russia. And, and now we have this Tom Barrett, uh, who was supposedly accidentally working for a foreign agency. <laughs> Can you explain how we are so cavalier with negotiating for the U.S.? Yeah, I hate, I hate when that happens, when you accidentally spy for a foreign country. Um, you know, and I think we should keep in mind that the lead charge against Tom Barrack, and Tom Barrack is a lifelong friend and associate of Donald Trump's and, of course, the chairman of his inaugural committee. The lead charge is the exact same lead charge that we brought against Maria Butina, the Russian spy. So this is not somebody who just, whoops, didn't fill out the proper paperwork to lobby on behalf of the UAE. This is a person who was involved in a two-way back channel, taking the UAE's priorities and then peddling them to Donald Trump and the American people as if they were America's priorities. And, you know, and, and when you read that indictment, Tom Barrack is done in court. He has no because all of them, so much of this is in writing. 
So much mm-hmm. of his criminal activity was in writing, captured in emails and other written communications. The only open question is, has Tom Barrack flipped against Donald Trump? If I had to bet, I'm not a betting man and $1 is my limit, I would bet a buck that Tom Barrack has already flipped mm-hmm. or will flip against Donald Trump because he has no real loyalty to Trump the way perhaps family members might have a loyalty to Trump. And I don't think he wants to die in prison. And his only hope at his age and given the strength of the indictment against him is to cooperate. So, you know, and 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 yet here we are. We know nothing about it. And Donald Trump is out playing golf and recruiting his next batch of foot soldiers for insurrection 2.0 if he can pull it off. Absolutely. Uh, Let me ask you to speculate a little bit. Why does he command such loyalty that that he does command uh, he's never been loyal to any of his people i don't understand why people like his his bookkeepers and these people are so loyal to him i don't think it's loyalty as much as it's a combination of fear and for some reason he attracts lots of weak people to his orbit you know people like lindsey graham and these people are so weak and fearful um, so I think fear is part of it. I think a quest for power and proximity to power is part of it. I think compromise is part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, there's a direct pipeline between Donald Trump and the Kremlin. You, you can't convince me otherwise when even Bob Mueller in volume one documented as many as 140 contacts between the Russians and the Trump campaign. And, you know, he has had Russians laundering money through his properties, Donald Trump. Forever. Right. Um, His own son. So admitted it. I think. Yeah. So I, that's right. He say he said we get all our money from Russia, basically. But, so I think as as a result of that connection, I bet Vladimir Putin and folks at the Kremlin provided Donald Trump with lots and lots and lots of information about lots of political figures, because if there's one thing Russia does well, it is develop and collect up compromising information about American people and American politicians. Um, Because the only thing that explains to my satisfaction how Lindsey Graham could go from saying Donald Trump is, you know, the world's most horrible person and will be the death of the Republican Party if elected and we will deserve it. He was right. To playing around a golf with Donald Trump after he was elected and Mm -hmm. coming out the other end and saying, Donald's my man and I'll stand by his side, you know, through thick and thin. That to me sounds like Donald Trump said, Lindsay, let me crack open mm-hmm. this dossier on you and show you what I am now in possession of. You asked me to speculate. That's speculation. But that's yeah. the one thing that explains to my satisfaction how any human being, never mind a senator, can go from definitively saying Donald Trump will be the death of the Republican Party to the next day saying Donald Trump is my man, and I'm sticking by him. That's compromise. And he did it twice, actually. If you remember, after the insurrection, he came storming in saying, I'm yeah. done, I'm not having this anymore, and yet he appears to be having it. And, and I guess that's another question, too, is as much as, as you, you want to get the, the head of the beast in Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey, aren't they culpable for some of these criminal activities? They certainly made it easy for him. Yeah. Yeah. And let let me use one example. When Lindsey Graham stood up and begged for campaign contributions in the halls of Congress, a former prosecutor, uh, Eric Swalwell, representative from Mm -hmm. California, 
immediately tweeted out, Lindsey Graham just committed a crime by soliciting funds in the halls of Congress. That's a federal offense. Nobody seems to care that our politicians violate federal law. So that's just one example of, again, inarguably criminal conduct by Lindsey Graham. And what happens? Nothing happens. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell, one of his former campaign chairman, I think, or deputy campaign chairman just was indicted. Um, and uh, I think it was also had some connection to Rand Paul. You know, I can only hope that at some point all of this will come home to roost and we will actually clear some of the corruption out of our government and get people in office who are actually willing to honestly do the work of the American people. I will say I'm not wildly optimistic. Changing a little bit in the topics, turn a little bit to policing. Um, as a prosecutor, I'm sure you worked with law enforcement on a regular basis for years. Can you explain the supposed hold, and I don't know if it's true hold, that the GOP claimed to have on the police of America when you hear the loudest voice from police about gun restrictions. You, you've you seen the scenes of cops being beaten by Blue Lives Matter flags at the Capitol. It really questions whether they do have the rank and file on their side. And like I say, you've worked with them. What do you, what's your feeling about the police and, and the Republican Party? Uh, yeah, so I really had the, the privilege of working with uh, so many law enforcement agencies because in D.C. we have a, a really interesting little jurisdiction because there are so many law enforcement agencies. So I got to work not only with the local D.C. police, the Metropolitan Police Department, but, you know, FBI and ATF, DEA, Park Police, Capitol Police, Secret Service Uniform Division, the U.S. Marshal Service, the Postal Police, Amtrak Police, Smithsonian Police. It goes on and on and on and on. Um, and by and large, in my experience, the police are hardworking public servants who really are there for the right reason to protect and serve. Not all of them. And we have seen horrific police abuses. I think the most upsetting was the, the uh, George Floyd murder. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, but I agree with you that for some reason, regardless of how the police seem to be mistreated by the Republican Party, there has always been this traditional sense that the Republicans are more aligned with law enforcement and more supportive of law enforcement than, you know, than those Democrats, those liberals who want to legalize marijuana and want to engage in criminal justice reform. So more people are put it back out in the streets. And so I, I think a lot of that has been turned on its head because, you know, what what endangers the public most and what endangers the police most are unregulated firearms. I mean, it's mm -hmm. firearms that are killing the police, and yet the Republicans want, you know, two chickens in every pot or, you know, three guns in every household. And, you know, that's that comes down to money. I don't think it's anything but NRA money, which we learned a lot of it is courtesy of the Russians funneling it through the NRA. But so I, I think that is a it's a sense that's hard to shake that the Republicans are the pro law and order party. I will say that, you know, the police, as is probably true of the military, I was active duty army for six and a half years. 
you know, they, they seem to be more conservative than they than they seem liberal, um, generally speaking. And so maybe there is that natural affinity between police and the Republican Party. But um, if you really stop and think about it, when Donald Trump's supporters, as you mentioned, were beating police officers with Trump flags and Blue Lives Matter flags and, you know, and they were some of them were actually police officers, firefighters, EMS workers, military members or retired from any of those organizations themselves, it kind of turns that that common belief on its head that, you know, these folks, the Trump supporters, the so-called, you know, hardcore Republicans really get, give a give a hoot about the police because they were beating and and darn near killing police officers on January 6th. Well, you'd like to think that the military and police both have the good ones have the mission uh, in, in place first over their own politics and their own issues of what society is doing. They have a mission to protect the country or protect the citizens, and you would hope that that would come. There's another battle, Glenn, that's being kind of waged and it's being missed, I think, which is the battle over who's writing the history of these current times. If God forbid these traitors get off with no consequences to their actions, it's even more important, in my opinion, that we document the evidence so that the next generations can properly judge us on what we did right or wrong to defend democracy. How do we ensure that the facts will remain in textbooks and law books in the future? Yeah, that that's probably above my pay grade. I, I trust that the historians, many of them, take their mission seriously, which is to accurately record what actually happened during this extraordinarily dark period in our nation's history. The problem is because, you know, the, the, a lot of the Trump folks seem to be completely untethered to the truth, then I fear you're going to have competing versions of history books out there. We see that playing out a little bit now with the whole crit <clears throat> critical race theory movement. Um, and I don't think, you know, looking back that we have always done a very good job of capturing and then accurately teaching history. So I don't know. I, I think just as we seem to become more splintered in literally all aspects of our society, courtesy of people now relying on the Internet and, you know, falling prey to disinformation and not being able to discern between disinformation and accurate information. It used to be, you know, when I was growing up, we had three channels on TV and you were getting the news and you were pretty much getting it without opinion or editorializing by the anchors. And now, and so we had this sort of common frame of reference and common experience and common understanding and that, I think, is forever lost, given where we are electronically in this country. So I don't I don't know that we're going to become more unified or that things are going to come back together again. I unfortunately think they're going to continue to fracture and splinter in lots of different directions. So I think consensus on what actually happened during this era and the history books that record what happened, you know, it's it's probably going to be a challenge for the historians. Mm. I'm hoping that the, the legal manuals and, and the, the court transcripts will at least last to, to let them know we tried. Uh, 
while I've got you, I can't neglect the what's going on in Texas, and I'm wondering, is there any hope for women in the protection of their bodies in Texas? Legal hope. Yes, yes, there is, because that Texas law is a stunt, and it's an obscenity, and it will fail. It will fail spectacularly, because when you outsource to private citizens the ability to deprive women of their constitutional rights and you outsource it to private citizens who have zero standing to bring a civil suit and zero damages to be recovered because you have suffered no direct harm. And the two things you need to bring a civil suit are standing and damages. This law will fail. Now, I and beside myself that five justices on the Supreme Court opted not to stop it on an emergency basis. And the question of whether this Texas law will fail, I think, is a distinctly different question from whether the Mississippi abortion law case, which is coming up for argument on December 1st before the Supreme Court, will succeed in either ending or chipping away at Roe v. Wade. That's a different question. Um, but as of right now, the women in Texas are being their, their their constitutional rights for the time being have been revoked their right to privacy by Brett Kavanaugh and four of his fellow justices. That's an obscenity that we are clawing back constitutional rights that our citizens have enjoyed for nearly 50 years. And something's got to change. Um, I think that militates in favor of, first of all figuring out what was in the 4,500 citizen tips about Brett Kavanaugh's suitability mm -hmm. to sit as a Supreme Court justice that the FBI delivered directly to the White House counsel's office in the age of Trump, and they were promptly buried. They delivered them to the very people who had every incentive to bury derogatory information about Brett Kavanaugh. We need to get to the bottom of that, whether it's because Congress subpoenas the 4,500 tips or the White House counsel's office, assuming they are still in possession of it. Now it's Biden's White House counsel discloses them to the American people. But something has to be done because right now we have somebody whose nomination and confirmation hearing was a sham and he was crammed down America's throat. And, you know, that doesn't even begin to address what what the Republicans did on the Amy Coney Barrett front after mm. unconstitutionally depriving Merrick Garland of his confirmation hearing. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but I am not wildly optimistic that at the end of the day, Roe versus Wade will remain intact. I mm. think this court five justice majority is probably determined to revoke the constitutional rights of women. And that's a special kind of obscenity that America can't tolerate. Can we expect any maybe hope from John Roberts? He surprised me a few times, health care being one. Yeah, well, he voted, I believe, in the he voted with the minority trying to stop the Texas law on an emergency basis. So there is some hope there. There's not really ideological hope, but he's somebody who has always shown himself to be concerned with the legitimacy of the court and 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 how the court is viewed by the citizenry. And I think that's what prompted him to be the one who recast the Affordable Care Act's um, uh, uh, requirement 
that penalties be paid, right? He recast that as a tax mm -hmm. in his zeal to not strike down that legislation, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. That was John Roberts being someone concerned with the legitimacy of the court and trying to reach consensus. So I still have some confidence that his desire to have the court seen as legitimate will, will rule the day, but only for him. I don't know that he will have any luck making inroads with people like Thomas Kavanaugh, Coney Barrett, and Gorsuch, and Alito. But maybe, maybe I'm underestimating him, and I hope I'm underestimating him. You know, I've always been a classic card-carrying member of the AHCLU. What good organizations would you recommend backing uh, to achieve justice in this country? I think any of the sort of democracy-centric, rights-centric <laughs> organizations, whether whether it's the ACLU, crew, the uh, responsible, what is it, the Citizens for Responsible Ethics in Washington. Um, there's a lesser known group called Free Speech for People, and they are beating the drum hard for accountability in government and prosecutions of all of these political criminals or criminal politicians. So those are some of the organizations that I think are out there. And there are lots and lots and lots more doing good work. Um, but, you know, it's really up to us because we, you know, Mueller didn't save us. Biden hasn't saved us and is not able to. Merrick Garland hasn't saved us. It's up to us to save us. And, um, you know, the, the real concern now is we're only as good as the and with the Republicans, you know, trying to suppress the vote in states nationwide and gerrymandering, the ballot box seems to be even a dwindling hope. So if we don't have that, I'm, I'm not sure what we have. I know there were a lot of people, including myself, that were hoping maybe we would hear uh, Attorney General Kirshner. Uh, have you thought about running for anything, putting your expertise out there? No, I'm not. A, I, I'm not a politician. I spent 30 years as a public servant and I never had to ask anybody for a dollar. And when you know, you realize that members of Congress and I only know this because members of Congress have told me this former members of Congress spend about five hours a day, every business day, working the phones, begging for money because they need to be reelected. I couldn't run around asking everybody to donate money to me so I could be a public servant. Um, if Joe Biden ever called and asked me to, you know, be to empty the trash at the White House, I would do it. So if I were ever asked to serve, I would I would surely serve. But after a little over 30 years with the federal government, I thought uh, the time was right for me to, to step away and take take a modest retirement and try to have a professional chapter two that involves the getting the word out in every way I can conceive of that the rule of law is important, that ethics in government is important. And that's why, you know, I, I will talk all day, every day about my view of the legal issues that are unfolding every day and what what's really going on and what people should make of them. You know, one of the things you said when I first contacted you that just delighted my heart was you you said you'd talk justice to two men in a donut shop and to a stacked arena. And I kind of think that's what your Justice Matters podcast is about. Can you talk about what you're trying to do with that podcast? Yeah, so um, seven days a week, I put up videos. I do one a day, and each 
video is basically taking on a legal issue of the day. And I've been with MSNBC now. I just re-upped uh, my contract. I'm going on four years and I love talking. I'll be on with Zerlina Maxwell tonight on Peacock TV. I love talking about legal issues of the day on MSNBC um, and its affiliates. Um, the challenge for me, I spoke to juries for 30 years and I ordinarily had enough time to talk with my jurors so that I could unpack everything that I thought they needed to know. I could relate the facts, I could put it in context and explain what it means and I could talk with them about the inferences I was hope, I, I hoped they would draw from the evidence. What I found when I started talking on TV for two and three minutes at a clip Frankly, I feel like I do a disservice to the topic mm. and to the viewers because you can't explain it, put it in context, and then tell people what it means. You don't have enough time. Mm -hmm. So that is what sort of gave birth to my Justice Matters YouTube channel, where I spend, you know, sometimes six minutes, eight minutes, 10, the outside, maybe 12 or 14 minutes unpacking a legal issue of the day and trying to put it in perspective give people context and then explain what it means and where we might go from here, you know, in any given issue. And it seems to resonate with people. And so that is, it's, you know, it, and, and it's an all volunteer effort, really just me and my wife, we do this every day. Um, and it's, I, it's not a nonprofit, so I don't ask people to donate money. They can support me if they want to go over to patreon.com and become part of the team justice efforts but it's really just for the love of justice that I do this every day. It seems to resonate with people and it gives people some, some context and some perspective that you just can't get in three minute increments uh, on the, on the daily news. We're going to give out the number that's 895-2448, 895-2448. I know we've been promoting this a lot this week and we wanted to make sure that you, the listeners had a chance to speak with Glenn and, and maybe get a, get a little boost of justice coming. We hope. Uh, Glenn, when we last spoke, uh, one of the things I didn't mention was you mentioned the Compromont. We didn't talk much about Justice Kennedy and the circumstances regarding him leaving. Why don't we wait for a call? Why don't we, if you have an idea of what was going on behind the scenes there with his son and some financial... Uh, yeah, no, nobody really knows. We've all seen that somewhat infamous clip now when Donald Trump said something that was obviously alarming to Justice Kennedy. And you could see Justice Kennedy's body language. He was pushing back on whatever it was Donald Trump had said or suggested. I think that is one of the many areas ripe for investigation. Why did Justice Kennedy leave when he left? Uh, I believe Justice Kennedy's son... I, I don't want to misstate the facts, but was somehow involved with Deutsche Bank. I mean, that is something that is just as important, I think, for us to unravel, as are the 4,500 citizen tips that came in about Justice Kavanaugh's suitability to be on the Supreme Court. Tips that were delivered to the White House Counsel's Office, the very people who were determined to bury all derogatory information about Brett Kavanaugh. You know, this is something that the American people deserve to know because Brett Kavanaugh is one of the justices who just acted to deprive women in Texas of their constitutional right to privacy. And they are on the cusp when they hear a case uh, on December 1st invo involving a Mississippi 
abortion law. They're on the cusp of depriving all women in this nation of their constitutional right to privacy. I think we need to know more about the Kennedy matter and the Justice Kavanaugh matter before we just begin to give our constitutional rights away to a potentially corrupt Supreme Court. Could not agree more. We do have a caller. Let's take this first caller. Caller, you're on with Glenn Kushner. Great. Thanks for the great show. My question is about Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell has had has headed up uh, the uh, movement for the far right to take over the justice system, the court system in our uh, nation. He succeeded in a obvious in our face way uh, with uh, the last appointment to the Supreme Court. This man is a clearly a criminal, clearly a crime boss. How does he get away with it? And what is there anything we can do about it? He's a, he's a danger to our democracy. There's no two ways about it. To answer your final question, how does he get away with it? He only gets away with it if we let him. If the Department of Justice declines to conduct the rigorous criminal investigations that are um, appropriate given evidence of wrongdoing. Going to the judiciary question, as a 30-year prosecutor who's, who you know, appeared before hundreds of judges, both military and civilian, the way Mitch McConnell went about soiling our federal bench is despicable. There are so many judges who were rated not qualified by the American Bar Association who are now sitting in federal court around the nation. One of the things I've proposed to try to remedy that is if citizens will go in once we are past the age of COVID and all courts are live again instead of virtual, if citizens will go in and will court watch, observe how these not qualified judges are performing, and when they see misconduct, you go on uscourts.gov, there's a two-page judicial misconduct form you can fill out. It's simple. You fill it out, you file it online, and then we can dig into these not qualified judges that Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell crammed down America's throats. Um, we have to work to dislodge them working within the law and within the system, but it has to be addressed. And not to belabor the point, but do you know what the Obama administration's policy was when they submitted the names of potential federal court nominees to the American Bar Association to be rated? If the American Bar Association came back and rated that judge not qualified, President Obama didn't nominate him or her. That happened 16 times wow. under the Trump-McConnell administration. Um, they didn't care about whether a judge was qualified or not. They cared about their ideology. And that is no way to put together a fair, independent, even-handed federal bench. Now, that's a way to pollute it for years to come. We have another caller on. Let's go ahead and take that caller. Caller, you're on with Glenn Kirchner. Hey, Glenn. I'm a big fan of the podcast. And, and I just wanted to say, you know, we pretty much, if you watch the news, uh, you know, MSNBC and the kind of balanced news, we all pretty much know the facts or what, what we've been told. But it just seems like that we're running out of time with the, uh, the Democrats. You know, they can't seem to get with Joe Manchin and, uh, and uh, the other, the woman. Uh, they can't seem to do what they want to do. And, and now the Republicans are holding their feet to the fire about the, um, you know, financing the government. 
and just how long can can this go on? I mean, with the with the midterms coming up in twelve, thirteen months, how long can this corruption go on? I mean, it's corrupt on the Democratic side too. This Manchin guy takes all you know, coal money, and it's just it's just terrible. But how long can this go on before this country just completely unravels? Because I mean, there's seventy four million people that think believe in the big lie, or I don't know how many believe in the big lie, but voted for Trump. And, and then they're still, you know, they're still on his side. And how long can we continue to go on at this, at this rate with all these lies and corruption before everything just unravels? It's very disconcerting. I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for the kind comments. And, and it's a great question. How long can it go on? As long as we allow it. And by we, it really boils down at this moment to the Department of Justice, not Congress, because politics is going to be politics. The problem is, as you mentioned, 74 million people still believe the big lie. And it looks like those numbers may actually be growing. Why? Because the Department of Justice has declined to bring federal charges against Donald Trump and his co-conspirators and his criminal enablers for the crimes that he inarguably committed. I was a 30-year prosecutor. I can look at even the evidence that's just publicly reported, and I can tell you there is probable cause plus, plus, plus. Probable cause is the standard to arrest and indict. Donald Trump far exceeds that standard. And, and by the Department of Justice not acting, what it's doing is almost tacitly approving of everything Donald Trump and his criminal co-conspirators say and do. The only way to wrestle this thing to the ground is to indict these folks federally, put them on trial in a public forum, and let the American people see what the evidence is against them. Not everybody can be persuaded. There, there's a block of Trump supporters who are beyond gullible. They worship and idolize Donald Trump. So if he tells them Monday is Tuesday, then they're going to do, do their Tuesday stuff. Um, but, but I do think there are a lot of people who could be persuaded if we presented to them the evidence in the setting of a public trial. The fact that the Department of Justice hasn't done it is only adding fuel to Donald Trump's fire, and I don't understand their inaction. Is that because they're crossing every T and dotting every I? I mean, is that something that you used to do as a prosecutor? Or if you had a preponderance of a stack of evidence, you would you just started the indictment and maybe it's built from there. What a great question. So as a prosecutor, when I was investing, investigating somebody, what we call proactively, in other words, no arrest had been made. We were just investigating the crime in the grand jury. Every single day I had to make a judgment. Do we have probable cause? Do we have enough to charge this person, arrest them and take them off the street? Once we do, then it becomes a public safety issue. Because if you have probable cause and you decide for whatever reason, you've got more ducks to put in a row, this is a really dicey proposition because it will be the maiden voyage of indicting a former president, whatever the reason, once public safety is at risk, you need to move out, you need to indict, and you need to arrest if you have probable cause. I think the Department of Justice you know, is still getting its ducks in a row. I didn't know there were that many ducks on the planet, but apparently <laughs> there are. And the problem is public safety is at risk. Public sentiment is at risk. Our democracy is at risk 
That's why the Department of Justice needs to move out, not for political reasons, but for law and order reasons and public safety reasons. We've got one last caller we're going to squeeze in, Glenn, and we'll take this caller. Go ahead. Called in early. This might be a hard question. I have one uh, quick comment um, uh, about um, the the jump from corporate industry doing just what you said, like a robber running us into a car hitting us. The original lawlessness, in my opinion, came in the in the 2000s when we let corporate industry continue to kill people with no. Um, you know, with no real follow-through on um, consequences for that. So I, I just seem to be really easy to see how it could jump to a person, an individual, especially an individual who had such large ties with corporate industry. And just to bring it home really quick, we have a company here who, um, even though uh, public safety has said you need to cut down your dead trees, and they have acres and acres and acres of dead trees. We have no boots on the ground to really, you know, work to make them do that. When does a, when does public safety uh, breach the threshold into criminal activity? And when should we expect uh, our district attorney, our county district attorney, to work with the California state to actually persecute this company or prosecute this company? And what would that look like as far as, like, maybe a settlement or actually close the company down, like, if I were to have to go to jail and then go in front of the judge? Well, I don't know if you can answer a specific thing because that's local here. But uh, I'll, I'll, I'll add to that and just say in the final minutes or something we have less, what is the, the, what is the action we should be taking? We've got a lot of activists here in Mendocino County, and they'd like to do something about this. What do you recommend? So first of all, I recommend engaging, engaging, engaging in our government in every way you can think to engage. Now, of course, everybody needs to get out and vote, but look at what some of the Republican legislatures, the state legislatures are doing, trying to pass voter suppression laws and what they're doing with gerrymandering districts um, to disenfranchise certain communities. Still, I think that the vote is the most important um, tool we have in our toolbox. The reason I say that is because, you know, you can try to deprive women of their constitutional rights in Texas and perhaps nationwide. I think that's a political miscalculation because I think that will drive women and hopefully men, because we have a dog in this fight Absolutely. too. It will drive people to the polls in record numbers notwithstanding the voter suppression laws you try to pass. You can't stop us from voting. So I know I'm preaching to the converted, but voting, getting your friends out, getting your family out, getting strangers out, working civic involvement organizations, and just get involved. You know what? Run for your school board. Run for your city council. Get involved, because the more we're involved, those of us who love and care about our democracy and want it to be healthy and viable, the more we get involved, the more good we're going to be able to do. Well, I have to confess, it, it kind of refills me with a little bit of uh, hope. And it is almost like a uh, word of the day calendar in that you take a subject and really break it down in, in ways that maybe only uh, Rachel Maddow could, could uh, compete with. 
Well, Glenn, I really appreciate you taking the time and giving us uh, a few minutes of your time for the folks of Northern California. I hope it's refilled some of their uh, feeling that justice is indeed coming for the USA. Yeah, my my pleasure. And uh, uh, thank you to all my friends in Northern California. I know you're out there fighting the good fight for justice as well. So I'm, uh, I'm happy to rejoin you anytime. Thank you so much, Glenn. This podcast was produced by KZYX-FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, local community radio from Mendocino County, California. If you enjoyed the program and you'd like to hear more, in Northern California, you can tune in anytime to KZYX at 90.7 FM in Philo, KZYZ at 91.5 FM in Willits and Ukiah, and 88.1 FM in Fort Bragg. If you're listening to this podcast from further away, we also stream live 24 hours a day at kzyx.org, where you can hear our eclectic range of locally produced music, public affairs, and news, along with daily state and national news programs and breaking news. You can also find out how to become a member to keep KZYX on the air. Thank you for listening.